it's been really compelling to see a lot of the advancements in higher education. For example, just in the past couple of years, there have been advancements in things like tutoring services, learning center technology, learning management systems, and even the ways that students are taking tests and quizzes now have changed. So with all the options out there, schools are finding it, finding it increasingly difficult to choose solutions that really impact their bottom line and bring back the most ROI, whether it's in the form of student retention, um, improved graduation rates, or even transfer rates from many colleges. Yeah, it's definitely true. Um, all across the country, we see a lot of different activity. Um, for example, Tennessee, they just announced that all community colleges are free. In Portland, it looks like they're going to be doing the same thing. What people are trying to do is find out what is it going to take to increase uh, really the success of our workforce as people get older. And what we're here to kind of showcase is that the importance of understanding um, the different parts of the student education cycle that impacts their ability to graduate um, is really where the, the focus should be. For example, some people are focusing a lot on things like tutoring and tutoring services. Mm -hmm. Others are focusing even more on extracurricular activities. Others are taking a look at things like financial aid services. Um, and then still others are even looking at things like um, how do we help support people who have uh, kids at home, people who are trying to uh, make a living while going to school. All these different factors are all playing a part in the attrition rate. And the real big question is, which one of those is having the greatest impact? Yeah, and it's, I think one of the really interesting things is that it boils down to two core um, competencies. One is that um, services that are being offered to students should be easy to use. And two is that these services should be appealing to students. Um, so what I mean by being easy to use is that there shouldn't be any barriers for students to go in and get support when and where they need it. Um, logging in should be simple if it's an online system. Um, students should already know how to utilize a certain system or a process that's in place. And I think what schools are finding is that the services that they're offering, if they are easy to use and appealing to students, students are coming back to them and they actually are seeing that increase in student engagement and graduation that they expected in the first place. Yeah, I would completely agree. Um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that talking to a lot of different administrators, the questions that I get asked by administrators are a lot different from the questions that are asked by students. Administrators will ask me questions like, how do I download reports? Or how do I know which students are using the system the most? Mm -hmm. But the students are understanding that the importance for them is, is it available for me when I need it? Uh, is it going to be easy for me to use when I need it? Do I need extra tools to be able to, to have those types of interactions? And it's really about making sure that whichever school you're working with, that the administrator's goals and the student's goals are being met. And so we really need to make sure that both sides of those, uh, those views are being brought to the table. Yeah, and I think one of the things that tends to get lost pretty frequently is just around marketing to students and making them comfortable with the service. Mm -hmm. um, and, and not just students, but also instructors and faculty members and staff members. And there are a lot of different ways in which colleges are finding um, that students are really able to engage. So there's a lot more being done now in terms of social media and an online outreach to students, but also it's it's effective to have incentives in place where students are coming in and they're seeing direct benefit and um, there's constant reinforcement of positive behavior and um, I think what we're seeing also is that students who are able to keep building on different things, it really helps them throughout their time in college and 
really reinforces a lot of a lot of the behaviors that these schools want to promote. Yeah, one of the colleges that I know of back in North Carolina, at the beginning of every year, they go to every single classroom just to make sure that the students know that the services are available. And they know that it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to go and visit with every single instructor in every single class, but they also recognize that there's a lot of value, a lot of ROI that comes from that. And if they can do that little bit to help increase retention rates, then all the better for them. Yeah, and even I think a really different but similar and interesting trend within colleges is how they're starting to use more of their students to promote to other students. Um, often schools will have campus ambassadors or liaisons who go around and they'll demo new products with students or um, they'll just talk to them about the different services that are out there. And now all of a sudden the, the mindset is being changed where no longer are support services being thought of as these old stodgy services um, that students are really forced upon, but it's more so um, a flexible environment where students are able to utilize them as a, almost a partner or a supplement to their education. And mm -hmm. students are beginning to really enjoy that whole process much more than ever before. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And we also can't forget the importance of making sure that the dual credit students and the online students are also getting those same types of support. Uh, a lot of times we take we want to focus on the students who are right there in the classroom, mm -hmm. uh, the students who are the traditional students. But you know, when we're talking about the online students or the dual credit students, a lot of times these students are dealing with acute types of uh, concerns, issues, problems that traditional students might not be dealing with uh, in the same scope. Mm -hmm. It could be that they're working their way through school. It could be that they have kids. Um, and we need to make sure that as the services are being created for the student body as a whole, that this certain segment is being supported as well. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's actually a really good point. And <clears throat> along those same lines, one of the things that I think a lot of schools are beginning to experience as they grow is how to pull the whole campus together, where schools are beginning to spawn off from just having one main campus to different hubs, kind of a hub and spoke model, where mm -hmm. they'll have one large campus, but then they also want to support um, campuses in more rural areas, coastal regions, and having that same consistency when it comes to support services and marketing of those services is really important to make sure that students at all campuses receive a, the same level of um, support from the college. Definitely, definitely. <clears throat> um, even, so even though the economy's rebounded quite nicely from where it was back in 2009, that doesn't necessarily mean good things for everyone. Um, for, for example, one of the problems that a lot of community colleges face is that student enrollment actually goes down in a, in a um, post-recession economy because students are able to go and get jobs and find their way into the workplace much easier. Um, so one of the things that a lot of colleges right now are looking for are ways to save money. Um, so in terms of op optimizing resources, it doesn't necessarily always mean cutting costs. Um, in fact, there are a lot of other ways in which colleges can save money without having to get rid of programs. Yeah, um, and that's, you know, that's really important for people to keep top of mind. It's usually difficult when you're seeing budget cuts happen to think about the fact that the way to counteract those budget cuts isn't just cutting costs across the board or cutting costs um, in, in areas that might seem like you're, you're just throwing a lot of money at it. Um, but it's really about thinking smartly about what's giving you that greatest ROI, what's giving you the greatest impact. And then by figuring out what that what those areas are, then you can focus on keeping those and using those more so that you can actually generate revenue as a result of 
your uh, specific decisions for your school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know I know one of the things that colleges tend to focus on pretty um, frequently, or at least they should, is um, first-year student retention. So one of the things that I think really is a good first step for a lot of colleges is determining which of their students are the most at risk. And often they'll find that it is those first-year students simply because they don't always have um, they don't always have the right type of preparation coming into college. It could be academic, it could be um, lifestyle, it could be financial in many cases. And if, if colleges are able to first determine which students to go after in order to save that, those dropout costs, then that's often a really good first step for them. Yeah, and within first-year students, specifically when you're talking about community colleges, uh, a lot of those first-year students are also first-generation students as well. So a lot of the schools that we work with, uh, we see that you know up to half of the students in these schools are first-generation students. That means they're not just dealing with going to school for the first time. They're dealing with things like financial aid for the first time, trying to figure out FAFSA, Pell Grants. Mm-hmm. They're, for the first time, learning things like the fact that whether or not you actually go to class or not all depends on you. And so having a support system, having a support mechanism that can support these types of students as they're making their way through that first semester, through the end of that first year, and actually deciding to come back again for the second year is, is very important. Yeah, it definitely is. And one of, I guess one of the problems is that students aren't necessarily open to come out and, and say to an advisor or a faculty member, I'm at risk, I'm, gonna, mm-hmm. I'm about to drop out. And so what they have to do is then find different unique ways to get to students before that actually happens. And Mm -hmm. one of the key things that a lot of schools are doing now is um, putting out first year surveys where throughout the throughout the course of a school year, um, especially as students first year out of school, it's really key for them to put out periodic surveys just to do things like test how the students feeling or Mm -hmm. how they how they perceive themselves to be doing academically, Um, even if even if the student isn't a C student or an F student, maybe a low B for one student is an at-risk sign in their own mind, and getting that kind of information is really important. Um, and, and also, I, I think along these same lines is really finding other ways to begin monitoring that at-risk student behavior mm-hmm. without the student having to directly come to an advisor or a faculty member and say, hey, I'm at risk, because that's, that's the exception rather than the rule in most cases. Yeah, that's definitely the case. A lot of students don't feel comfortable with going out and telling people that they need that additional help. Um, One of the areas that we've seen uh, a lot of students struggle with in the first year are those who come from lower income backgrounds. Um, Mm -hmm. There's just even more uh, reasons and obstacles to keep them from succeeding. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, you know, a lot of the students that I've spoken to, uh, they don't even have, you know, the ability to access a laptop or computer. So, you know, when you think about things like scheduling for classes or um, trying to go log on to something like a Blackboard to get help, that's all of a sudden uh, yet another obstacle that keeps them from being able to get the support they're looking for. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think one of the one of the results of of this mentality has been the rise of different things like early alerts, especially. And mm-hmm. I know there are a bunch of different um, technology tools and organizations that are really focusing in on some early alerts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these are really key for helping staff members and faculty identify upfront which students to go after and which students they need to support the most, 
even if it's not academically, it could be as something like an advising session a week or mm -hmm. maybe pairing them with a mentor, but really finding unique ways up front to make sure that students are supported as they're coming into school. Yeah, definitely. And you know, the thing is that in order to make something like an early alert work, you really do have to have the buy-in of the entire school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of times people think that trying to fix an issue is just as simple as buying a platform and installing it and then, you know, all your woes go away. But it's not like that. Um, a lot of times these early alert systems that are immensely beneficial to advisors, to career coaches, and to administrators are also overly burdensome to the instructors who have to put in information for attendance and things like that. And so mm -hmm. it's really about making sure that everyone's on the same, <clears throat> on the same page, that everyone understands the benefit, um, and that maybe even everyone can uh, get access to that type of information so that they can work together to help support students. Yeah, and the, the next really logical step for a school after they identify who, who it is that's most at risk is then discovering what are the most high impact tools that schools can utilize to address those at risk students. Mm -hmm. And I know just from some of the schools that we've worked with, um, they found a couple, a couple I think pretty standard solutions, but then also a few really unique solutions at some schools as well. Mm -hmm. um, I know that one of the one of the a couple of the standard solutions, for example, are different forms of tutoring services. Mm -hmm. However, they're being done differently now. It used to be that a student had to come physically to a learning center and sit down at a table with a pen and paper across from the table of their tutor. But nowadays it's different. There's there's peer tutoring going on. There are different online options, either um, direct one-on-one -on -one with your school's tutor or there, there are even companies out there providing different networks of tutors for students to connect with on a 24-7 basis. Mm -hmm. So the really, schools are beginning to eliminate the, um, the risk that students are dropping out or doing poorly because they don't have support. Um, it's becoming it's becoming really overwhelmingly available to all students now. Yeah, uh, there was even a, a recent Noah Lovis uh, report that showed that uh, tutoring has the greatest impact on student retention and student graduation rates in community colleges. Mm -hmm. And you know, so it's it's one of those things that <clears throat> in the beginning seems like it's a very costly effort because you are spending a lot of time and money. Uh, recruiting tutors or bringing them uh, on board if it's through a third-party service but if you're talking about wanting to have a major impact among your students you you can't you can't decide not to use the tutoring services yeah that's that's so true especially especially when you talk to students after mm -hmm. they've gone through tutoring and really developed a relationship with a tutor is it's it's no longer just a commodity or just a, a utility in many cases but it's it's someone that the students begin to rely on and someone that they feel like they can really connect with. Mm -hmm. um, even though it's not the only solution when it comes to student retention, it's a big one. Yeah. Another big one that, um, that we've seen recently has been the rise of um, advising. So making it so that advising is more accessible for all students, especially as we go back to uh, distance learning students and students on multiple campuses. Having one central hub for advising that can reach out to all students is really important for making sure that students students just understand the college atmosphere and obviously and um, most often that's one of the toughest things for them is just understanding the way in which college works mm -hmm. definitely uh, one of the schools that uh, that I just recently spoke to actually I uh, was talking about how they require that students come in and get advising uh, before they can register for any particular class 
and this isn't just students who are traditional students, but students who are taking online classes as well. Mm -hmm. They feel that it's just that important because a lot of times students don't really know if they're on the right pathway towards getting to that graduation uh, date, as well as getting to that career that they're looking for. And so uh, they really step up and say, you know what, we're going to make advising and even more particularly online advising one of the forefronts of what we do for students. Yeah, and I think, I think those, both tutoring and advising, help to really highlight some of the services that can be provided to students, but there's also been an increase in um, different services that are bringing students together. So you have, um, at, I know at a lot of four-year colleges, for example, they'll have a concept called learning cottages, where students who are maybe from um, similar backgrounds or of similar interests will actually live in the same dorm together. So mm -hmm. if you're a Spanish major, for example, they'll have Spanish majors li living in the same dorm together. Or if you're interested in um, different co-curricular co activities, they'll have dorms for that. Mm -hmm. um, there also a, there's been a rise in uh, mentoring programs as well, mm -hmm. um, specifically minority male mentoring programs across the U.S., um, really helping to target in on one of the most at-risk demographics and bringing those students together unites them and it, it allows them to have somewhat of like a, a competitive um, edge to college and um, the realization that, hey, there's other people just like me who are out here going through the same thing and, and I can do it because they can do it and they are doing it. Um, and then the last thing really is freshman seminars. So seminars bringing freshmen together to show them that, okay, not only are here are other students that are going through this for the first time, but they're not that different from you. They're, they're just like you. They have some of the same worries. And um, I think those three things really have shown how colleges are beginning to allow students to help support each other even more. Yeah, uh, one of the schools that, um, that we work with right now uh, instituted a minority male mentoring program just over uh, five, five or six years ago. Uh, and what they were able to see was a 30% increase um, in the number of minority males who retained from first year to second year just by instituting the program and creating an environment where they felt that they could uh, you know, really work together to help themselves succeed. Uh, and of course, the next level of that is now trying to help them to, you know, get better when it comes to grades and things like that. And that goes back to where academics play a part. But that mentoring, if that wasn't there, those students wouldn't be there today. And so, you know, that minority male mentoring program is definitely important. Yeah. And one of the I think one of the changes or I guess paradigm changes in the way that schools are thinking about these services is really um, their traditional method of thinking of them as cost centers to the newer method of thinking about them in terms of investments. And mm -hmm. so what schools are doing now is instead of just paying money and letting things sit, what they're doing is making these investments and then finding ways to optimize those resources. Um, for example, we touched on tutoring earlier. One of the key things that a lot of colleges are doing when it comes to tutoring is finding different ways to optimize the time of their tutors. Um, where they know now that um, tutors in a physical learning center still have tremendous value there's nothing quite like sitting at a table with a tutor and having them um, work through what you're doing wrong in your homework assignment or um, explain a concept of writing or, or math. Um, but what they're also finding out is that there's really a loss in efficiency if you're just tutoring people in the learning center. So they're beginning to do new things like connecting their tutors with students online so that if, if I did want to come to the learning center as a student, but I wasn't physically able to, I'm still able to have that same level of support, um, even from my dorm room or from my apartment building. Uh, so that's, that's one thing that I think really is proving that colleges are moving towards this idea of investment 
um, investment-based expenditures versus just as like cost centers. Yeah, definitely. And those investments in and of themselves start kind of taking a life on their own because, uh, you know, I, I know this uh, one school that we work with, um, one of their big struggles isn't just making sure that they have, you know, they can utilize the uh, offline tutors time wisely online, but there's different periods of time throughout the year when because those, those tutors are also uh, peer tutors, so they're students themselves, they're just not available to help students. Mm-hmm. And those times are at the same time that the students need to help the most. Yeah. So you're talking about midterms, you're talking about finals, and what they're able to do with a lot of these, uh, these additional services that are out there, third-party services, things like that, is that now they can connect those students with an online uh, list of tutors that are available uh, to give them support you know, 24 hours a day sometimes. Um, and that really helps the school to you know, keep their costs down because now they don't have to go out and find a ton of tutors just for that one month out of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, they're, uh, you know, when, when that need has gone down, they go back to not having to spend that money again. Yeah, and I think, I think also as, as that investment begins to morph, what they're doing now is putting more effort towards tracking those sessions where now they can learn a lot more about student behavior when it comes to meeting with tutors or advisors or mentors or whatever it is that the student's connecting with. Um, schools now have a much better way of collecting data and then making sense of that data over mm-hmm. time. Um, and, and I think part of that has really been a, um, a greater focus on some different types of technology and primarily open source technology and figuring out ways in which um, there can be a pairing between really the, the kind of the public and private sector where you have all these different investments that schools have made and over time what they want to do isn't necessarily to make a bunch more investments, but it's to enhance those investments that they've already made. So one of the things that uh, colleges have found is that they can actually help to bridge that gap between the public and the private sector by bringing in different types of technology, primarily open source technology. And open source technology is um, technology that is really built uh, by the community. So it's free to use, it's free to personalize and modify. And it's really, there have been some really helpful types of open source technology that have been built. One of the most famous ones is Khan Academy. And um, they've been really great for bringing students study material and resources when it comes to learning subjects and reinforcing current concepts that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some other ones out there as well that are maybe less known, but are also just as effective. As effective. I'm pretty sure that a lot of people don't know that Google actually has their own uh, education software called Google Classroom, which is open to the public. Um, and in many ways operates just like a Blackboard does. Um, it allows for instructors to post assignments, see how students are doing with those assignments. Things like that really allow for uh, more control over over uh, which students are struggling most. It goes back to that data that we were talking about. And now they can identify those students and begin to help them specifically. That helps to increase our ROI as well. So yeah, the last really, I think, interesting piece of open source technology that's that a lot more students are using now is um, related to computer science. So students are spending more time um, online learning coding, which is really cool. So there's different um, tools like Team Treehouse and Code Academy and other ways for students to learn outside of the classroom. So even if even if you're an English major and if, if you're a um, getting your degree in political science, you can still learn things like coding, which is really cool. Um, so I think what that really begins to define now is 
how colleges can make sense of all this information. So they now have all this different um, types of data collected either from third parties or from open source solutions or even from some of their own data input and analysis. And what they're finding now is um, one of the big obstacles is finding ways to make sense of that information without overly burdening their staff. Yeah, definitely. You know, as we were talking about earlier, uh, a lot of times it's really incumbent upon the staff to input a lot of that information. So uh, they're putting in information about attendance, grades, uh, students who are at risk a lot of times, flagging systems, and that gets to be a lot for them. Um, so it really is important for everyone to kind of come together and make sure that they're all on the same page. Now at the same time, uh, using deciding to go and embark upon this journey um, of becoming a data-centric school is in itself expensive. And there's a huge ROI for it, but you know, understandably a lot of people can be afraid of, of you know, what that means and what that entails. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, there's a lot of resources that are out there. Uh, there are a lot of resources that help schools to get uh, the funding they need to be able to support that. And there are a lot of resources where if you can prove that you're doing things that have an impact, such as your tutoring services, freshman seminars, learning campuses, learning cottages, things like that, then you can actually start to generate even more revenue for your school. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those places where it's using an investment type mindset rather than a cost type mindset that helps support schools. And some of those include things like, uh, I know there's, there's a Title III grant, uh, which is typically comes out every around every October, which allows for learning centers to put down what exactly they want to uh, use the funding for as far as support of their students. Mm -hmm. And if that gets approved by the federal government, then that's one of the things that they can utilize. So there are also other grants that are more specific than the g more generic Title III grants. So there's the Title V grant where colleges who typically work a lot with uh, Hispanic and Latino students mm -hmm. um, can be able to utilize that funding to support things like ESL programs. Um, there's a TRIO program, which helps students who, you know, we were talking about earlier, that some of the students who are the uh, most at risk are those first generation students. Mm -hmm. uh, TRIO program specifically helps students who are in that, pro who are in that, uh, in that group. Um, students who are you know, lower income, first generation, uh, now there's actual funding that can go and support them as well. Um, there's other types of grants as well. Uh, I know one of our schools are also one of the, uh, um, I don't know if you've heard of the Bill and Melinda Gates Completion by Design. Uh, they actually fall within that grant program. So uh, the Gates Foundation is actually helping to support them as they're looking for ways to become more innovative and do things that have a greater impact ratio as well. Yeah, and it's, I think it's also really good to see the, that these, grant, um, these granting organizations are placing more of an onus on these schools to collect data and really prove the impact. It's no longer good enough just to want to do good for students, but now it's, um, it's, it's the mindset that you must prove that you're doing good by students in order to get grant money and government mm -hmm. funds. And um, the way that that's moving has really enabled a lot of schools to do things like put more of a focus on um, things like early alerts and mm -hmm. um, factors that are going to play into student retention over time so that they can take information from early alerts and um, pair it up nicely in a grant proposal. So mm -hmm. no longer is it just taking uh, students' grades or performance in the classroom, but it's also enabling them to monitor different things like student behavior, attendance, um, 
how they're doing outside of the classroom as well. So all these things together really help to redefine how schools are getting money and how um, it's going to increase the ROI as a whole, not just on a college by college basis. Um, and then in addition to a lot of those early alerts, what schools are using more of now is um, industry-wide data. So there are different organizations like the Education Advisory Board, for example, that will go out and do studies on the whole college educa uh, higher education landscape. So they'll be able to go out there and focus on a particular initiative like first-year students or Latino students and report back on some of the best practices that um, colleges are following now. So as a college, not only do I now have my own view of data um, internally, but I also have all these different resources that are reporting on the more broader spectrum of colleges and what's working well when it comes to student success. Mm, and that's really important, especially as students uh, are going throughout their life cycles for education. So uh, you'll see in a lot of different areas where uh, colleges will be using some of the same resources uh, community colleges will be using some of the same resources that four-year colleges will be utilizing. Mm -hmm. And that way they can start to see what are causing students who are in the community college area to succeed and go on and get that four-year degree. Um, that's one of the things that we've seen happen within the Dallas uh, college system as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the more that we can utilize data to create these types of early alerts, but also create these types of trend analyses, the better we're going to see uh, impacts happening among our students. Yeah, and, you, and what's interesting is you mentioned the Gates Foundation earlier, and um, they also happen to be one of the best sources for publicly available information on student retention and um, different trends in the industry. And um, I know colleges are using that in addition to different consortiums. So schools are coming together and pooling resources and um, really working with one another. It's, it's, it's really interesting because it's we were just talking earlier about how um, colleges really are able to act in unison. It's not like your uh, typical um, business model where companies don't want to help each other. They don't want to um, tell each other what they're doing, but it, it really is about coming together and sharing those best practices mm -hmm. and learning from others. And um, a lot of a lot of colleges are much more um, prone to doing that nowadays, which is really cool to see. Mm -hmm. um, and then also as part of that, is um, has been a movement recently to streamline more technology. So taking all the all the different systems that colleges are using, um, coupling it with data, and figuring out how to make these different systems work together. Um, colleges now are able to have a view into um, all the different areas at their school. So the math department, writing department, um, foreign language, and what you can also start to see is how different students taking different courses are doing relative to um, other areas of the college. And it, it's not necessarily just in academic departments, but it's also across support areas. So data from advising and tutoring and mentoring are all coming together, all with the means of impacting students and um, making sure that they're on the right path to graduation. Yeah, and that's going to be important moving forward as well. Uh, what a lot of schools are looking at are what are ways in which we can see all this information uh, quickly, easily, um, at a glance. Um, and a lot of times, you know, what they're looking for are software uh, technology that we're, where they actually play well together. Um, fortunately, what we're seeing is that there are a lot of different initiatives to help support that uh, moving forward. And so things like, uh, uh, you know, like DataTel and Colleague allow for people to pull that information together um, and be able to showcase it and add in their own information as well. Um, I know that's one of the things that we've been working on is to make sure that what we do plays well with uh, some of the other schools' technologies as well.